sang about the glory of God, the glory of Christ. He is holy. He is holy. Uh, he is holy. We get to see that tonight. In fact, we're going to be starting in chapter 43. We'll be getting back to uh, chapter 42 in just a little bit. But I wanted to read to you the first six verses of chapter 43 as we uh, start tonight. After this, the man brought me back around to the east gate. And suddenly the glory of the God of Israel appeared from the east. The sound of his coming was like the roar of a rushing waters. And the whole landscape shone with his glory. This vision was just like the others I had seen. First, by the Kibar River, and, and then when he came to destroy uh, Jerusalem, I fell down on the ground on my face. The glory of the Lord came into the temple through the east gate, and then the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner courtyard. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and I heard someone speak to me from within the temple while the man who had been measuring stood beside me. So, Father, tonight, as we get to see a, a glimpse of your glory again in this amazing book of Ezekiel, uh, this, this man who, uh, even though 900 miles away from the place where he had grown up for 30 years, 900 miles from the temple that he was supposed to serve in, 900 miles from the place that was destroyed by the people that had captured him. Yet he still gets to see this vision of the future when your glory is going to come again to the earth, where you will reign here physically on the earth for a thousand years. Lord, as we read this tonight, I ask that you help us to get a glimpse of your glory even in our lives today, that you have made us your temple. We have the privilege of, of being bearers of your name. We have the privilege of having the one who comes in as the comforter into our lives, the one who seals us, that prepares us, that sanctifies us, your Holy Spirit. And so tonight we, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. And even as we got to worship you, as we got to sing together, as we, we got to praise your name, Lord, help us to understand that you are truly with us now, and we love you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. We're in this section now, and, and of course, you know, uh, we ended in chapter 41 at the very end, and, and we still have to get through chapter 42. There's still a lot of numbers left, okay? Uh, another whole chapter of numbers, but, but I wanted you to get a glimpse of where we're going, Okay. All this preparation from chapter 40, chapter 41, chapter 42, all these numbers are there for a reason. Because this is just the preparation for the coming of the Holy Spirit down to this temple. And you all remember at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, all the way back in chapter 10, we saw the glory leave. Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave uh, the temple, that, that temple that was built by King Solomon himself, from which the glory of God came down into. For 400 years was here uh, on the earth until it was destroyed uh, by the Babylonians. And, and, and the glory leaves. And now Ezekiel gets to see the glory return. The glory of God come back into an even uh, greater, bigger uh, temple. In fact, uh, I, I just wanted to remind you of kind of, you know, from an artist's perspective, uh, what the temple looks like uh, there. You can see it. This is what we you saw last week also. And again, you know, um, uh, numbers can only go so far. It's always good to see, you know, a, a drawing, I guess you will, 
uh, of the exact uh, temple itself. And, and you can kind of see just from a, a 3D version, this is a, a massive uh, complex. Uh, th this is uh, huge. And you can see the comparison there to an American football field, you know, uh, on the bottom right-hand corner. It is extremely a large uh, complex. We are getting to see the very details itself. Now, unfortunately, many people explain these things away. That this is just something uh, that, that is, you know, um, even here now today, amillennial. Uh, people that believe that this isn't actually a specific period of time. This isn't an exact period of time. These are just, um, you know, um, uh, a vision that Ezekiel saw. And you know from the last two weeks, these are very, very specific, detailed uh, uh, descriptions of what the temple is going to be like. This is not just some ethereal vision or just some uh, misty dream. Like many of us have, right? We can't remember when we wake up. E Ezekiel is remembering in very descriptive terms, even down to the very inches themselves, the, the very spans and the hand breadths, the very cubits all the way down to the description of the temple. This is very, very exact, including the number of years, which we find out from the book of Revelation is 1,000 uh, years. Last week we ended at the end of chapter 41. Today we get to pick up in chapter two, 42, verse 1. It says this, And the man led him me in out of the temple courtyard by the way of the north gate, we entered the outer courtyard, came to a group of rooms against the north wall of the inner courtyard. This structure, whose entrance opened toward the north, was 175 feet long and 87 and a half feet wide. One block of rooms overlooked the 35-foot width of the inner courtyard. Another block of rooms looked out onto the pavement of the outer courtyard. The two blocks were built three levels high and stood across from each other. Between the two blocks of rooms ran a walkway 17 and a half feet wide. It extended the entire 175 feet of the uh, court complex and all the doors faced north. Each of the two upper levels of the rooms was narrower than the one beneath it because the upper levels had to allow space for walkways in front of them. And since there were three levels and they did not have supporting columns as in the courtyards, each of the upper levels was set back from the level beneath it. There was an outer wall that separated the rooms from the outer courtyard. It was 87 and a half feet uh, long. And you remember uh, this angel who has these two different measuring devices. Uh, one of them is a cubit long. It is a, a rope or a cord. It is about 18 inches from the tip of the middle finger down to the bottom of the elbow. This was the flexible uh, measuring device. Uh, kind of like a, you know, a, a, a person who hems garments would wear around their neck. And then the other measuring device was the rod, right? And you remember the measurement of that rod was six royal uh, cubits or uh, six cubits that each had an extra hand's breadth added to them or three inches, which made it a even seven normal uh, cubits. So every single thing that we see here, and of course this is being converted into understanding inches and feet that we can kind of grasp a little bit better. But to understand that every single one of these measurements are meant to be not only royal in nature, but glorifying to God. In perfect harmony, rectangles and all these different measurements that we see that perfectly line up. In fact, this uh, courtyard that we see, these, these various columns that we see, these various rooms, they are put on top of each other in a stacking sort of a way. So that there's uh, walkways that go around each 
of the different levels. In fact, this one that we just read doesn't have any supporting columns. It, it is all supported by the structure that's underneath it. Look what it says there in verse 8. This wall added length to the outer block of rooms, which extended for only 87 and a half feet, while the inner block, the rooms toward the temple, extended for 175 feet. This was the eastern entrance from the outer courtyard to these rooms. And you remember from last week, every single one of the entrances into this massive courtyard all face toward the temple. The first thing you see as you go through this 175-foot hallway into this amazing, beautiful complex, you see the temple. Everything points to uh, the temple. Verse 10. And on the south side of the temple, there was two blocks of room just south of the inner courtyard, between the temple and the outer courtyard, these rooms were arranged just like the rooms on the north, everything symmetrical. There was a walkway between the two blocks of rooms, just like the complex on the north side of the temple. This complex of rooms was the same length and width as the other ones, and it had the same entrances and doors. The dimensions of each were identical so there was an entrance in the wall facing the doors of the inner block of rooms and another on the east at the end of the interior walkway. You understand what is happening here. There is perfect description down to the very smallest detail of what the temple is going to look like. This is not some hazy dream. That this is something very, very uh, specific. In fact, so much so uh, that the numbers that are used in these three chapters, chapter 40, chapter 41, and 42, are the most amount of numbers that you see in terms of dimensions in the entire Bible. E even more so than King Solomon's temple himself. Uh, for King Solomon's temple, it was only about a, a half a chapter. That's it for the description. Even all, all the way back to the tabernacle itself, there, there was a lot of descriptions of what it was looked like, but it's only about a chapter and a half. That's it. Th this temple is described in great uh, detail all the way down to the most minute of the measurements. In verse 13, then the man told me, these rooms that overlook the temple from the north and south are holy. Here the priests who offer sacrifice to the Lord will eat the most holy offerings. Because of these rooms are holy, they will be used to store the sacred offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings. When the priests leave the sanctuary, they must not go directly to the outer courtyard. They must first take off the clothes they wore while ministering because these clothes are holy. They must put on other clothes before entering the parts of the temple or the building complex open to the public. I, I don't know, you know, we go to Calvary Chapel, you know. But, but, but if you go to, a, you know, certain denominations of churches, may, maybe, you know, uh, older, you know, your grandparents or your parents or whatever it was. And, and you remember what people used to wear to church, right? Why, why would they wear nice clothes to church? Why do people wear nice clothes to, to church? Yeah, your Sunday best, okay. Anyone else? Respect, exactly. Do you, do you understand why... These priests had a standard of what they did. But even to the very clothes that they wore, they understood that there was a respect in the office. Even so much so that the robes that they wore were holy. Because when they sacrificed to the Lord, it was something that was done as reverence. Now remember 
these sacrificial systems are not to, you know, for sin or to for forgiveness of sin, just like when we take communion ourselves. You remember the illustration from last week, the privilege that we have whenever we take communion, it's always to remember what Christ did for us, not to re-sacrifice Christ. It's not an actual turning of that juice cup or, or that piece of bread into the body of Christ in our body. It's not that way. We do not re-crucify Christ. We remember what he did and we look forward to the time when we get to celebrate him in heaven forever and ever and ever. And it's the same thing with the sacrifices that the Jewish people will be doing during this time. It's a remembrance of what Christ has done uh, for them. And so much so that the very clothes that the priests are wearing are holy to the Lord. They're, they're Sabbath best, if you will. In verse 15, when the man had finished measuring the inside of the temple area, he led me out through the east gateway to measure the entire perimeter. Now, the measurements that are used here are controversial. Uh, in, in the NLT, um, these are a lot smaller measurements than uh, what it is in in, in other versions of uh, the Bible, like the New King James Version, it says he measured the east side with the measuring rod, and it was 875 feet long. And then he measured the north side, and it was also 875 feet. And the, the, north, the south side was also 875 feet, and the west side was also 875 feet. So the area was 875 feet on each side with a wall all around it to separate what was holy and what was common. Now, do you guys know how long 875 feet is? You round up 900 feet, it's approximately three football fields right next to each other. The, the, the immensity of this complex, and it's dedicated to the holiness of God. This is why when we get to chapter 43, the privilege of seeing the glory of God return to the temple. In fact, uh, there's one more picture that I wanted to show you. This, we also saw this last week. But this is the immensity of the Ezekiel's temple or, or the Millennial Kingdom temple. Uh, that biggest of the pictures you see there is the description uh, that we just saw in chapter 42. And then you have King Herod's temple, which is the, the third temple, if you will. This was built uh, uh, not only after King Solomon's temple, but also Ezra and Nehemiah's temple, this was the temple that was used during the time of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was here on the earth, this was uh, the temple that King Herod had built for uh, the Jews. Then you have King Solomon's temple, which is in the orange. It is a lot smaller, even though it was uh, very, very detailed, very, very beautiful, uh, in, literally in, uh, covered in gold. And then you have the, the Ark of the Covenant, or excuse me, the, the tabernacle, which also housed uh, the Ark of the Covenant there that the people carried, the Israelites carried in uh, the wilderness. Of course, that was a lot smaller. And then you have something that, you know, we can kind of relate to an American uh, football field. Uh, do you see the immensity, the, the, just the largeness of the Millennial Kingdom uh, temple. In chapter 43, the glory of God returns. This is one of those amazing chapters that if you've been here for the length of Ezekiel, really uh, turns the, the mood of Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel has been having to deal with people uh, that are constantly hard-hearted, stiff-necked, have been rebelling against God. The reason why the glory of God left in the very first place. And now what does Ezekiel get to see? The glory of God return. Can you imagine what that does to the heart of a prophet who has been faithful? 
Lord, I just, I just long to see your glory return. And he himself, you know, even though he's a sinner uh, saved by uh, grace, he is a prophet of God speaking the truth to the people. He's just longing that they would repent, that they would return. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then again, next book that we're going to get to read, Daniel. Just longing for the glory of God to return. The temple to be rebuilt. This is what Ezekiel gets to see. After this, the man brought me around to the east gateway. By the way, this is the same gateway where uh, Jesus Christ is going to enter. This, of course, is the Millennial Kingdom uh, temple, the temple uh, that Jesus Christ will be entering in. Uh, and, you know, even today, it's, it's sealed, right? It's the eastern gate is sealed today. And there's going to be a, an amazing earthquake that's literally going to split the Kidron uh, Valley uh, from east to west. And Jesus Christ is going to enter into the eastern gateway when he returns to this earth. This eastern gateway here is where the Spirit of God is going to return. Can you imagine that? Where, where the glory of God enters into this eastern gate. By the way, the same eastern gateway uh, that he saw the glory of God leave. Where he saw the glory of God leave through the eastern gateway in King Solomon's temple. Now in this temple, the glory of God is going to return through the eastern gate. Suddenly the glory of the God of Israel appeared from the east. The sound of his coming was like the roar of rushing waters. And the whole landscape shone with his glory brighter than the sun. Brighter than the sun in all of its glory. Can you imagine the glory of God returning to the temple? And, and you see it across the horizon. The glory of God is returning. This vision was like the others I had seen first by the river Kibar. And then when he had destroyed Jerusalem, I fell down, face down on the ground. Just like every other person that had seen the glory of God. What do they do? Boom. Right on their face. Just like Isaiah did. Just like Moses did. Every single person that has ever seen the glory of God, boom, right on their face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple. It goes through the eastern gateway. It goes into uh, the temple itself through the east gateway. And then the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner courtyard. Remember, Ezekiel was never allowed to enter into King Solomon's temple. He wasn't old enough. He was 30 years old when he was captured. He, he had not reached the age when he was supposed to be able to put on those holy clothes. To be able to sacrifice to the Lord. To be able to partake in any of the ceremony in the temple. And, and now he's taken up by the Spirit, capital S by the way. A, a, a person who comes and takes him into the very inner courtyard of the temple. And the glory of the Lord filled uh, the temple. Wow. Just like Isaiah describes in chapter 6. Just like we read about in Revelation as well. The, the privilege of seeing the glory of the Lord fill the temple. And I heard someone speak to me from within the temple. While the man who had been measuring stood uh, beside me. Now, you've probably heard this term before. The Shekinah. This is a, a term that we don't see in the scripture. But, it, but it's a, a term that is used, a Hebrew word uh, that is used in a lot of uh, uh, Jewish commentaries of uh, this section in the Bible. As well as when, you know, the glory of God entered into the temple during the time of King Solomon as well. 
And even though the word Shekinah doesn't appear in the Bible, the concept clearly does, or the description does. You see, the Jewish rabbis, they coined this extra-biblical expression, a form of a Hebrew word that literally means he caused to dwell. So this word Shekinah literally means uh, the dwelling of God, where, where God enters into a place. Just like he entered into the tabernacle, the, the building or the tent that the people of Israel carried with them in the wilderness wanderings. Just like the glory of God entered into uh, King Solomon's uh, temple. And just like we see here in the millennial kingdom as well. You see, it was meant to signify a divine visitation of the presence of the Lord God on this earth. This earth that is filled with common things now has the glory of God in the center of it. The very temple itself filled with the glory of God. And who gets to see it? Ezekiel. The priest without a temple. Verse 7, the Lord said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. Wow. And the place where I will rest my feet, I will live here forever among the people of Israel. They and their kings will not defile my holy name any longer by their adulterous worship of other gods or by honoring the relics of their kings who have uh, died. Has this ever happened in human history? Have the Israelites ever wholly devoted themselves to the Lord at any time in earth's history? No. This is something that's going to be a future. And the description here of what we see, literally, the earth will be centered upon uh, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be centered on the glory of God. So much so that people will come from all around the world to see this place. It's magnificence. Verse 8, they put, or they put their idol altars right next to mine with only a wall between them and me. This is describing uh, King Solomon's temple. We saw that earlier in the book of Ezekiel where literally the priests were worshiping the sun. They're worshiping all the, the hosts of heaven. They're worshiping the stars and the moon and all the various idols inside King Solomon's temple, by the way. They defiled my holy name by such detestable sin, so I consumed them in my anger. Now let them stop worshiping other gods and honoring the relics of their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe to the people of Israel the temple I've shown you, so they will be ashamed of all their sin. Let them study its plan, and they will be ashamed of what they have done. Describe to them all the specifications of the temple, including its entrances and exits and, and everything else about them. Tell them about its decrees and laws. Write down all the specifications and decrees as they watch so they will be sure to remember and follow me. Why is the description of this temple so specific? So that when it comes on the earth, people will know. Even down to the smallest of details. Remember from last week, we saw that not only was this massive courtyard described, but but even the very temple itself, the, the holy place and the holy of holies, where the glory of God comes down to. What does it say there in verse 12? And this is the basic law of the temple. This is what everything, I mean, even, even if you can't picture the temple or, you know, or, or you know, get overwhelmed with all the measurements, which is so easy to do. I'm sure all of us have. 
Do you understand what all this is about? It says it there in those two words, absolute holiness. Every single part of this temple is meant for the holiness of God. Absolute holiness. The entire top of the mountain where the temple is built is holy. You go to Israel today. There's only one part that they consider really holy today. It's the Western Wall. It's the wall where... Uh, uh, they, they, they believe that the King Solomon's temple used to be. Just, just one little part. And, and it's not that long, actually. It's very small in its uh, length. There, there's a part for the men, and then there's a, a dividing line, and there's a part for the women. And, and literally, people will write uh, their prayers, and they will stick them into the cracks of this wall. Uh, the Western Wall, or what is more commonly called the Wailing Wall. And, and people are very animate when they go to these, this place. The, the, the privilege of being able to be as, as close to the what, what once was the, the greatest temple here on uh, the earth. King Solomon's Temple. Where, where they, they literally recite their prayers, where, where they read from their prayer books, where, where literally they, they rub their beards against. The, the holiness of God, just to see a glimpse of that. Now imagine the description of this temple where the entire temple is holy. Where all the, the people that believe in the Lord, the true Messiah, seen as we sang earlier, the glory, all glory be to Christ alone. And he himself is reigning here on the earth. His feet planted in this place. The entire temple mount is now holy. There is no more Dome of the Rock. There's no more sharing it with the Muslims or other religions. This entire temple complex is holy to the Lord. Do you understand why the Jews are so uh, desirous for this to take place? Where, where even they themselves believe that this is a, a real event that will happen in uh, the future. Unfortunately, I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the one that's going to do it. It's a future Messiah. We'll see that as we continue on in verse 13, by the way. This is the measurement of the altar. There is a gutter all around the altar, 21 inches deep and 21 inches wide, with a, a curb 9 inches wide around its edge. This is the height of the altar. Now, you see the description of the entire complex. Now we see the altar itself. This isn't just some small, you know, little square, okay? This is massive. Look at the measurements as what we see in the description here in verse 15. The top of the altar, the hearth, rises another, or rises seven feet to the upper ledge that is also 21 inches wide. The top of the altar, the hearth, rises another seven feet higher with a horn rising up from each of the four corners. The top of the altar is square, measuring 21 feet by 21 feet. By the way, this is a perfect seven cubits. To understand what this means, uh, excuse me, 14 cubits. Uh, I, I, yeah, 14 cubits. Two holy uh, measurements on top of each other. Do you understand the descriptions of this? How immense this is. 21 uh, feet. In fact, I, I have a description here for you guys. Just the very bottom itself is 24 and a half feet by 24 and a half feet. And, and then as it goes out in this uh, kind of triangular pattern, at the very bottom, it is 31.8 feet uh, wide. So the stairs themselves, as you see this, uh, going up to uh, the top level, 
All these stairs that walk up, this altar is huge. Everyone can see it throughout the entire temple complex. The understanding here is that this is going to be where people will see what is happening as the altar is being used by uh, the priest. You see the different levels, and then around uh, the altar itself, there's this trench. Do you know what the trench is used for? The collection of the blood. Now, of course, you know, you remember during the time when Jesus Christ, what we call Easter, or the time when Jesus not only celebrated the Passover lamb, what did they do on Passover? The lambs were slain, right? And what did Jesus Christ, as the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, thereat being literally condemned during the Passover time, he was being examined. He was found as holy, and then he himself was sacrificed. Do you know why when we take communion, it is not only to represent uh, the body of Jesus Christ, but also the blood of Jesus Christ as well. And, and now imagine this altar where the sacrifices are being still slain, but now as a remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for everyone there. It, it literally visually seen it, where the blood is flowing down. In fact, in verse 17, the upper ledge also forms a square measuring 21 and a, or excuse me, 24 and a half feet by 24 and a half feet with a 21 inch gutter and a, a 10 and a half inch curb all around the edge. These are steps going up. The east side of uh, the altar, by, by the way, that 21 uh, inches is a, uh, what we call a royal cubit. A cubit is 18 inches, and then adding 3 inches to it is a royal cubit. The same thing with the 21 uh, feet. This would be a, a royal uh, 10 sets of cubits. The description is very, very uh, amazing if you really understand it in terms of what the Hebrews uh, would see it as. Verse 18, it continues on. Then he said to me, Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. These will be the regulations for the burning of offerings and the sprinkling of blood when the altar is built. And at that time, the Levitical priests of the families of Zadok who minister before me are to be given a young bull for a sin offering, says the Sovereign Lord. You'll take some of its blood and smear it on the four horns of the altar. The, these uh, horns that were on every single corner of the upper part of uh, the altar. This is the same thing that they did in the uh, uh, tabernacle in the wilderness and also in King Solomon's temple as well. And the curb that runs around the ledge, they will cleanse and make atonement for the altar. Then they take the young bull for the sin offering and burn it at the appointed places outside the temple area. And on the second day, sacrifice as a sin offering, a young male goat with no physical defects. Then cleanse and make atonement for the altar again, just as you did with the young bull. When you have finished the cleansing ceremony, offer another young bull that has no defects and a perfect ram from the flock. You are to present them to the Lord and the priests are to sprinkle salt on them and offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. This massive altar and the cleansing not only of the altar itself, but also of the priests. Now, it's interesting if you go back to 2 Chronicles, this is where King Solomon actually dedicates his temple as well. Read what it says there in chapter 7, verses 8 through 10 of 2 Chronicles. The description is almost exactly the same 
It says here, for the next seven days, King Solomon and all Israel celebrated the festival of shelters. A, a large congregation had gathered from as far as away as, as Lebo Hamath in the north and the brook of Egypt in the south, all the way from the northernmost area of Israel, all the way down to literally the border of Egypt. People had come around uh, to be able to see the temple dedicated during the time of King Solomon. On the eighth day, they had a closing ceremony where they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival shelters for seven days. And then at the end of that celebration, Solomon sent the people home. They were all joyful and glad because the Lord had been so good to David and to Solomon and to his people Israel. Why is there this uh, sanctification process? Of the temple itself. This isn't something that is dour. This isn't something that's sad. This isn't something that is boring. What is it meant to be? Joyful. A celebration. Of the temple itself. Where the people actually are, are happy. They're glad. This is a festival uh, that takes place. Same thing in the Millennial Kingdom Temple. In fact, going back to chapter 43, starting in verse 25, we read the same description here. Every day for seven days, a male goat, a young bull, and a ram from the flock will be sacrificed as a sin offering. None of these animals may have any physical defects of any kind. Do this each day for seven days to cleanse and make atonement for the altar, thus setting it apart for holy use. And on the eighth day and on each day afterward, the priest will sacrifice in the altar the burnt offerings, the peace offerings of the people. And then I will accept you, I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. There is a cleansing, there is a sanctification process. Do you know why an animal has to be sacrificed? It's a remembrance what Jesus Christ did for the people. The, the true cleansing of us, right? To understand what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then the man brought me back to the east gateway in the outer wall of the temple area, but it was closed. Do you know why it's closed? This is the entrance where the Holy Spirit entered. This is the entrance where the glory of God entered and no one else is allowed to enter through this gateway. This eastern gateway is now going to be sealed. No one else is going to be allowed to enter into this way because this is where the glory of God entered into uh, the temple itself. What does it say there in verse 2? And the Lord said to me, this gate must remain closed. It will never again be opened. No one will ever open it and pass through. Why? For the Lord, the God of Israel has entered here. This is a sacred gate. This is a gate that is used by God alone. Therefore, it must always remain shut. Verse 23, only the prince himself may sit inside the gate. He's not allowed to enter. He can sit beside it to feast in the Lord's presence. But he may, but he may come and go only through the entry room of the gateway. The man brought me through the north gateway to the front of the temple. And I looked and I saw that the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell down, face down. On the ground. Zechariah chapter 14 verses 3 and 4. It says this. Then the Lord will go out and fight among these nations. As he had fought in times past. And on that day his feet will stand. On the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. This is what we call the second coming of Christ. We're in this time period that is literally fought over depending upon how you interpret the scriptures. Many, many different denominations have, have literally fought over these uh, verses. Where, where if you're, you know, a pre-millennial or, or maybe a, a post-millennial or, or maybe a, a, a mid-millennial or, or 
pre-tribulation or, or post-pre or post-tribulation or or uh, mid-tribulation uh, or or ah whatever ah millennial or you know they don't even believe that it happens. Or as my dad would say, I'm you know uh, pan-trib. You know, well, God will make it all just pan out, right? God's in control. Do you understand what is happening here in very descriptive terms? You see, we have the rapture of Jesus Christ, where a rapture of Christians where Jesus Christ literally midair takes those who are dead in Christ up to heaven and then us that are alive and remain that know Jesus Christ personally will also be taken up. And then, then you have this period of time called the tribulation where, where there's seven years here on uh, the earth. The first three and a half, there's peace between uh, the Antichrist and, and the Jews. And then in the very middle of the tribulation time period, uh, the temple that is there during that time period will be desecrated. And this great tribulation will take place, the description there in the book of Revelation, where literally a third and then another third and then another third and then a half of the world's population will be killed. And then you have this event that we see here in Zechariah, what's called the second coming of Christ. You're going to be part of that, by the way. You get to return to the earth. And then we have the millennial kingdom temple that happens after this. Look at the description of the second coming of Christ here in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 4. And the mount of olives will split apart making a wide valley running from east to west half the mountain will move toward the north and half toward the south. The place that is called uh, the, uh, uh, the Mount of Olives is going to be split in half. That, that place where if you go to Israel, you see the very top of the mountain and you see Jerusalem down below. That, that mountain is going to be split in half and Jesus is going to walk through uh, the eastern gateway. People have been trying to prevent that for literally thousands of years. Is it true? Will it happen? We believe it will. It's in very descriptive terms here in the book of Ezekiel. Verse 5, And the Lord said to me, Son of man, take careful notice. Use your eyes and your ears and listen to everything I tell you about the regulations concerning the Lord's temple. Is this something just vague? Is this something just a misty dream that, that he's going to forget about when he wakes up? No, this is something that is very, very descriptive in terms of what he is supposed to do. Take careful note of the procedures for using the temple's entrances and exits and give these rebels, the people of Israel, this message from the sovereign Lord. O oh, people of Israel, enough of your detestable sins. You have brought uncircumcised foreigners into my sanctuary. People who have no heart for God. In this way you defiled my temple even as you offered me my food, the fat and the blood of the sacrifices. In addition to all your other detestable sins, you have broken my covenant. Instead of safeguarding my sacred rituals, you have hired foreigners to take charge of my sanctuary. Do you understand why God is addressing this? There's a reason why God sets up what is called the priesthood. People that were supposed to be set aside specifically for serving the Lord. And what have they done instead? They've allowed people from other religions, other nations to come in that, that have no clue who uh, Yahweh is, who the Messiah is, and what have they done? They've desecrated the temple. They, they, they've changed what is supposed to be now holy into something that is no longer 
holy in order to appease the nations. In fact, in verse 9, it goes into even greater detail of that. It says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. No foreigners, including those who live among the people of Israel, will enter my sanctuary if they have not been circumcised and have not surrendered themselves to the Lord. Why is God so specific here? Now, of course, we, we understand we're not Jewish, unless you have some Jewish blood in you, unless you somehow can trace your ancestry to, you know, Israel. But for the most part, us here in this room, we're Gentiles, right? We're other than a Jew. We're, we're not Jewish. Do you know what it's saying here about these foreign people, these Gentiles, what do they have to do in order to enter into the temple complex? It doesn't, it doesn't say that they have to be 100% Jewish. What does it say about the foreigners? They have to be circumcised in heart, as we, we see here. But also, what does it say? They have to obey uh, the Lord. They have to know God Personally, even in the Old Testament, uh, foreigners were allowed to come in. They just had to be uh, converted into a Jew or believe who uh, God is. They, they had to understand what it meant to worship in the temple. It's the same thing when we come to church. We take communion. Why is communion so important to a Christian and why it's meaningless to everybody else. It's a relationship with uh, God. In fact, it says there very clearly and have not surrendered themselves to the Lord. What does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to accept Jesus Christ into your heart? What does that mean? You have to surrender. And who do you surrender to? The Lord. And it's the same thing during this time period too. Men of the tribe of Levi who abandoned me when Israel strayed away from me to worship idols must bear the consequences of their unfaithfulness. The Jews will be judged during this time. Even the Levites, even the priests themselves. They may still be temple guards and gatekeepers. And they may slaughter the animals brought for burnt offerings and be present to help the people. But they encouraged my people to worship idols, causing Israel to fall into deep sin. So I have taken a solemn oath that they must bear the consequences for their sins, says the sovereign Lord. Those priests, those Levites uh, that had not uh, set, set themselves apart to God as holy will not be allowed to be priests during this time period. In fact, so much so, as it says there in the next verse, they are to serve as temple carekeepers, taking care charge of the maintenance work and performing general uh, duties. What will they get to do? They'll make sure that everything's clean, right? They, they get to actually help sanctify uh, the temple. They'll be the gatekeepers. They'll be the ones that serve in the temple itself. Verse 15, however, the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok continued to minister faithfully in the temple. When Israel abandoned me for her idols, does God remember your faithfulness? Does God see your faithfulness? You see these priests of Zadok going all the way back uh, to uh, King Solomon's temple. They had remained faithful when the other uh, priests had not been faithful. These men will serve as my ministers. They will stand in my presence and offer the fat and the blood of the sacrifices, says the sovereign Lord. They alone will enter my sanctuary and approach my table to serve me. Uh, they will fulfill all my requirements. When they enter the gateway to the inner courtyard, they must wear only linen clothes. They must wear no wool while on duty in the inner courtyard that they cause them or that may cause them to perspire. 
When they return to the outer courtyard where the people are, they must take off their clothes they wear while ministering to me. They must leave them in the sacred rooms and put on other clothes so that they do not endanger anyone by transmitting holiness to them through this uh, clothing. This is kind of funny, actually. Why are they we supposed to wear a specific type of clothing? So they don't sweat. It's not meant to be work. It's meant to be something that is a, is a privilege for them to do. And you've all seen this before. The, you know, the pastors that, you know, wearing their three-piece suit, right? Why are the priests supposed to wear these breathable clothing, this linen clothing, something that's not wool? It's meant so that when they're literally lifting these heavy animals, serving in uh, the temple, the sacrificial system that is going on, they are not supposed to be sweating. This is something that's supposed to be a privilege between them and uh, God himself. Even down to how they look, verse 20, and you've probably seen this before, they must neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow too long. Instead, they must trim it uh, regularly. Even in the book of Leviticus, it describes it as not cutting the corners of their hair. If you've ever, you know, been around a Jewish person, you know, a, a, a Jewish person that keeps the Levitical law, they have these curly cues, right, on the side of their head. Because they purposely don't shave the corners of their head or their, their temples. This is meant to be a part of that. But also, it continues on there, uh, they must also, the priests must not drink wine before entering the inner courtyard. They may choose their wives only from among the virgins of Israel or the widows of the priests. They may not marry other widows or divorce women. They will teach my people the difference between what is holy and what is common, what is ceremonially clean and unclean. Are they supposed to be the examples for everyone else? They're not supposed to enter drunk into the temple. As, you know, Aaron's two youngest sons did. They're supposed to have this holiness about them, even in their very marriage as well. Verse 24, they will serve as judges to resolve any disagreements among my people. Their decisions must be based on my regulations and the priests themselves must obey my instruction, the decrees at all the sacred festivals and see to it that the Sabbaths are set aside or are set apart as holy days. They're the examples. And of course, this is why the people of Israel are in bondage during the time that Ezekiel is writing this. Where the priests, the examples to the people of what is what, what was called holy. No. They had departed. Instead, they were showing the people how to sin more. During this time, the priests are going to be set aside as holy. They'll be the ones that show the other people how to worship God, verse 25. Listen to the last two paragraphs, and we'll be ending here. It says, A priest must not defile himself by being in the presence of a dead person, unless it is his father or mother, child, brother, or unmarried sister. In such cases, it is permitted. This was the case way back in the Old Testament as well. This was the case for, for those that had taken uh, the, these oaths, that they weren't allowed to uh, take part in any uh, funeral or to touch a dead uh, body or something that was unclean. Even then, he can return to his temple duty only after being ceremonial cleansed and then waiting for seven days. The first day he returns to work and enters the inner courtyard in the sanctuary, he must offer a sin offering for himself, says the Sovereign Lord. And the priests, they will, uh, will not have any property or possession of land, for I alone am their special possession." 
Do you understand what this says? Just like the Levitical tribe, even in, throughout the Old Testament, they had no land, no property. You know why? They were supported by the other tribes. The, the tithe that was given to the temple supported this entire tribe, the Levitical tribe. Same thing is happening here. Does that take faith? Yeah, where, where a person has to rely upon other people to support them, just like our pastors that are supported by the ties of this church. When, when you support this church, your money not only goes to electricity and all the other things that go on, but we're supporting men, right? Men like Pastor Mike Ostheimer and Pastor Jason and Pastor Mike Atkinson. Those, those men that serve in our church, the pastors. They are supported by us, just like these priests. It says in verse 29, their food will come from the gifts and sacrifices brought to the temple by the people, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, whatever anyone sets apart for the Lord will belong to the, says it there, priests. The, the, those those food that you would bring, and, and you know, of course the tithe at that time, or and even at this time, isn't going to be just money, okay? You're, you're going to be bringing a, a lamb, and the priests get part of that lamb. You're going to be bringing these, these first fruits and, and, and these, you know, this agriculture that, that you've raised yourself, and then, then you bring it to, and, and the priests get to have it as well. There's going to be a picnic there on that altar, the priests also get to partake of this. This is part of their uh, food, how they sustain themselves. In fact, what does it say there? Even to the first batch of dough must also be given to the priests so the Lord will bless their homes. Wow. That bread that they would bring. In the last verse of this chapter. The priest may not eat meat from any bird or animal that dies a natural death or that dies after being attacked by another animal. Why is the Word of God so specific? Why are there all these numbers that are so specific? Why are there all these requirements that are so specific for the priest? Is it just some sort of law that they have to obey? It all points to the glory of God. It all points to who God is in his very being. Are we supposed to be examples of holiness? Yes, we are. When, when you come on a, a Sunday or Monday or Wednesday or Friday or throughout the week, is it an obligation that you feel that you have to do? When you worship the Lord, is it some sort of obligation that you have to do? Because, you know, you somehow, you know, have to repay God. Why do you come? It should be because you want to be in the presence of God. It should be a desire on our part to be, you know, in the very presence of a holy and righteous God. With people that also want to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And we have the privilege of knowing God better and better every single time we come into his presence. Does he want to have a relationship with us? We should have the same desire. That we should have a, a relationship that is close with the Lord. So tonight I, I pray that not only as we've read through this, but also in your own lives, has the Holy Spirit entered your life? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Do you know, do you know the Messiah personally? Do you, do you have a relationship with God? You are a temple of God. Even more glorious than this temple. So tonight as we leave, I pray that the Lord will reveal these things closer and closer to you. More and more clearly to you. You would see him working in, in your life as well. So, Father, tonight as we finish up this section, we get the privilege of knowing you a little bit better.
You're a God of order. You're you're a God of perfection. You're a God of details. You're a God who not only um, looks forward to taking us with you, but also the privilege that we see that even here on the earth for a thousand years there will be this reign of who you are physically here on the earth where your glory will return to this earth to show your holiness to a people that didn't deserve to have you in their midst. People that have rejected you for hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet you're going to come back and give them another chance. Just like you've done with us, you've given us chance after chance after chance. You, you, you've uh, drawn us through your Holy Spirit, through your goodness, through your kindness to come back to you. Lord, we are so grateful for your Holy Spirit. We are so grateful for your presence here tonight. And so as we leave this place, uh, change us so that we desire to be closer to you. Lord, I ask that you prepare our hearts, especially as next week we take communion. We get the privilege of seeing not only the temple, but also how the world will change. The nation of Israel will change. You'll make it the dead come to life. That, that part of the land that is dead, you will revive and bring back to life. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to see just a little glimpse of your glory. I ask that you bless these, my friends and my family tonight, that you would help us to glorify you, even amongst those that don't, even amongst those that, that reject you. Help us to be bold and glorify you. Be your examples to people that don't want any part of it. So, Lord, I thank you so much for what you're teaching us and help us to be used for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.